Um, so this morning we're going to resume our study of the book of Exodus. Um, and the title of the message, as you can see, was up here earlier. Uh, it's called The Finger of God. And we're going to take a look at this, uh, this next part of the story of Exodus. But before we do that, let me just remind you where we were at a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the last time I was here, we talked about the first plague. What was the first plague in the book of Exodus? The river of blood, right? That was the first plague that we took up last week. If you missed that uh, sermon uh, or any other sermons for that matter, uh, I encourage you to watch uh, the recording on YouTube or on Facebook. So um, today we're going to be talking about the second and third uh, plagues uh, that we find in this chapter, in chapter 8. And like I mentioned before, the plagues are grouped into three Groups of three. So every time that God was going to send the plague, it, come, it came in groups of three. And there were three groups of three. And the last plague was the climax. So it's like, what's the last plague again? The death of the, the firstborn. Uh, and again, these, uh, these three plagues, uh, I'm going to argue along with the rest of the plagues, were also were, were, were aimed at the gods of Egypt, ultimately. God was trying to answer Pharaoh's question in chapter 5, right? What was, the, what was the phrase that we kept repeating last time I was here? Who is God that I should listen to his voice? Uh, these plagues are God's response to that uh, statement by Pharaoh. Who am I? I'm going to show you uh, through these plagues. Um, now, this first group of three plagues were considered to be loathsome or disgusting affecting the comfort and cleanliness of the Egyptians. Uh, these three plagues, along with the rest of the plagues, again, uh, were aimed mainly at the uh, Egyptian gods and goddesses. Uh, and uh, this is God's way of introducing himself to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now, last week, we talked about three things that we can learn from the first plague, the river of blood. What are the three things that we can learn, if you guys can remember? First, uh, that the god of the Nile, who is happy, remember, Happy God of the Nile, H-A-P-I, uh, is still being worshipped even today. Um, the God of the Nile, Happy, is the God of satisfaction. He offers fullness of life and satisfaction. Uh, today, he's still being worshipped. Uh, or whatever, he, she, or is being worshipped today. Why? Because a lot of people, that's where they base their whole mentality on. Self-satisfaction. What is it that will make me happy? And people today, nowadays, do whatever it takes or whatever makes them happy. doesn't matter if there's objective truth that stands right in the way of their happiness. They're willing to forego that. They're willing to neglect this truth as long as they're happy. So even if the truth is staring them right in the face, this kind of mentality ignores and neglects the truth in exchange for self Satisfaction. That's the first thing we learned. Second thing we learned last time I was here, we learned that there are still magicians in our world today who can replicate miracles uh, with their own fake miracles. Um, I said that these fake miracles have made their way into the worship music that we listen to and sometimes even sing in our churches today. If you want to know why, watch the sermon. I'm not going to go through it today. Third thing we learned uh, last time that I was here 
we saw that in chapter 7 that even though God has shown and proved himself to be more powerful than the Egyptian gods, Pharaoh and the people of Egypt still chose to dig holes, remember, in order to get their water. They still chose the lesser, right? Well, we can't drink the, uh, from the Nile because it's blood. We can't drink from the ponds. We can't drink from anywhere. So instead of submitting to God, what did they do? They dug holes. They were willing to drink muddy, dirty water as long as they don't submit themselves to the God of Israel. And people are still doing that. Those are the three things that we saw that we can learn from uh, as we took a look at the first plague. So, what happened? At the end of the first plague, people dug holes. Pharaoh just went into his house. Didn't even care. And he hardened his heart even more. So, how does God reply to that? How does God respond to this act of the Egyptians? We're going to see uh, as we take a look at the second and third plagues. Let's read again, Exodus 8, 1 to 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come out or up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same thing. Why or how? Through their secret arts, they made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So the question is, why frogs? If I was God, I would make crocodiles come out of the... (laughs) There's, There's Nile crocodiles. Have you seen the Nile crocodiles? As big as the stage. So why? Why not crocodiles? <laughs> just eat everybody. Right? Why frogs? Uh, just like what I mentioned before, there are many Egyptian gods that God wants to make an example of. So this time, it is the god Heket. H-E-Q-E-T. The god Heket. And according to some commentaries, Heket is a fertility god who is pictured with the head of a frog and the body of a woman. I have a picture. There. That's the god. What's the name of the god? Heket. Head of a frog, body of a woman. Now, Heket was associated with frogs and fertility. Why? First, because frogs were commonly found in the Nile River. There's not lots of frogs in the Nile. Second is because frogs can reproduce rapidly. Right? They, when they lay their eggs, the eggs become botetes, right? in Tagalog, right? well, tadpoles. <laughs> I forgot the term for, frog, for little frogs. They become tadpoles, and there's tons of them. 
They reproduce quickly. And that's why Heket is the god of fertility. Um, and uh, the Egyptians worship this god because frogs also symbolize being part of two worlds. Okay. If you know your science, what are frogs considered? What under, uh, they're what? Amphibians, right? They can live on in water and they can live on land. They're associated with two worlds. They're both creatures of land and water and the Egyptians worship that. For them, it's like being on the land of the dead and the land of and the living and being, being able to live in both. Uh, that's why they worship these frogs. So as a show of irony, since the Egyptians worshipped this frog god, the god of Israel decided to show them what and who this so-called god was all about. Oh, you want to worship frogs? Let me give you some frogs. Millions and millions of frogs. Remember, right? I, I said this last time. Sometimes God will give you what you're asking for, even if it is bad for you. Sometimes he'll do that, right? Because you're, you know, we're makulet, right? We're stubborn, hard-headed. Hard you keep asking for this, it's bad for you. No. You keep asking again, God, please, please, please. I want a boyfriend. I want a girlfriend. No, bad for you, bad for you. Then you keep asking, so God gives you that boyfriend from hell, that girlfriend from hell. Here you go. <laughs> right? Sometimes he does that. You want money? Here. You want, uh, you want that job? That, you want that job? Yeah, 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 here. Like you say, you know, you're stressed out because of the job. There's a reason why God doesn't give us things, right? A lot of times. And most of the time, all the time, supposed to be for our good, but we're too stubborn to listen. Same with the Egyptians. You keep worshiping this God, let me give you all your frogs. Here's your frog God. And the Egyptians uh, quickly learned this lesson the hard way. Because what happened? The frogs that they worshipped came out of the Nile. They went into their homes. They went into their bedrooms, in their kitchens. Some of us probably like, oh, it's good, in the kitchen. Who eats frog here? Uh, what's wrong with that, Pastor? We have a buffet of frogs. <laughs> you can just fry these things up. There's nothing wrong with that. It went into their kitchens. And notice, it says there that it even went on their servants. Who are the servants of the Egyptians? Some of them were the Israelites. So even the Israelites, some, some of them were affected by these frogs. And um, um, what did the magicians of Pharaoh do? Well, just like what they did with the snake, when the Aaron made the snake, uh, pole turn, turn to a snake, they made a snake. And when the river turned to blood, the magicians made more blood. This time, the magicians, oh yeah, you're going to make frogs come out? We can make that too. They made more frogs came, come out. Isn't that the stupidest thing you ever heard? Right? These frogs are in their homes, in their kitchens, in their beds, in everywhere. And the magicians, all they could do was, let's put some more frogs in there. <laughs> Good job. Great. Thanks, guys. Because ultimately, that's all that they could do. Right? All the magicians could do was to replicate. They can't reverse. You get it? 
They can only replicate the miracles through their magic, but they can't reverse it. They can't make the frogs go away. That's not what they do. They made more frogs come out. Right? That's the dumbest thing in this situation to do. Right? Um, so all the magicians did was added to the problem. <laughs> so if God made a million frogs come out, magicians added another million. Oh, now we have two million frogs. Good, good job. So what happened? Pharaoh, obviously if I was Pharaoh, I'd be like, oh, guys, what are you doing? So what did Pharaoh do? He goes to Moses in verse 8. Check verse 8. Let's read it. Then Pharaoh called who? Moses and Aaron and said what? Plead with the Lord to take away these frogs from, again, if I was Pharaoh, I would be like, plead with the Lord to take away these magicians. There it is. <laughs> no, he said, plead with the Lord to take away frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Pharaoh's already frustrated, right? All this frog. Imagine, I hate frogs. I can't, when we used to, um, you know, in the Philippines, people would touch them. <laughs> and I was always taught that when you touch a frog and they pee on you, you would get, uh, uh, what is that in English? A boil? No, a wart? <laughs> you get a wart when the frog pees. I, said, I hate frogs. Imagine millions of frogs. So Pharaoh was in, uh, was he, he was uh, frustrated with this infestation problem. He had no choice. Moses, please, tell your, or tell the Lord, he didn't even say, tell your God. He says, tell the Lord. Like he knows God. He doesn't, right? He doesn't want to know God. Tell the Lord to get rid of these frogs. In exchange, I will let the Israelites worship and serve him. Right? Um, let's read again. Uh, 9 to 14. So what did Moses do? Verse 9. Moses said, what? Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and for your people that the frog be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. 10. Tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. 11. The frog shall, what is it? Go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. Remember that verse. The frog is to, are to go away. The frogs are to go away, right, and go back to the Nile. Remember that, okay? We're going to go back to that. Twelve. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. Thirteen. And the Lord, what, did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out, the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. Stop there. Is that the word of Moses? Did Moses say, kill all the frogs? What did Moses say to the Lord? Drive the frogs away, make them go to go back into the Nile. But that's not what the Lord did. <laughs> but it says there, the Lord did according to... Frogs died, stayed dead rot they, they all rotted right and what did the egyptians do gathered them together in heaps and the land stank 
You ever heard, have you ever smelled a dead animal? Uh, there was once we went grocery shopping and we put the bags. You put your bags in your trunk, right? One pork chop fell in the trunk. And it was underneath all kinds of stuff. Pork chop was there. So we took, it, we took out all the bags, left the pork chop, chop there, summer. After a few days, we, we smell it, right? You check under the seats. <laughs> you look at the trunk, there it is, a dead pig in my trunk, <laughs> rotting. That's what, that was just one pork chop. <laughs> Imagine millions and millions of frogs. God never took them out, <laughs> right? Frogs died. And we're going to get to that later, so just keep that in mind. Right? And what happened next? After all the frogs died, verse 15 said what? But Pharaoh saw that there was a respite. What does a respite mean? Respite means that he saw a break. He saw a pause. He saw a stoppage in God's judgment on Egypt. And he, what did he do? Quickly took back his word. Oh, okay. So you're going to do what I say. Let me just take back my word. No, you guys can't go. Right? That's what it says in verse 15, right? But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to him as the Lord had said. So what did God do? Oh, yeah? Let me send another plague. God sent another one. And so this plague now had no warning in front of it. Remember I said this? The three plagues, the first two always had warnings. The third, it just comes, right? Third plague came, 16 to 19. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth. Okay? Again, keep, imagine that. The dust of the earth so that it may become gnats. Or as one of my friends say, gnats. So that it may become gnats in the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. Stop there. Have you, do you know what a gnat is? There's lots of them right now. I went biking. Gnats everywhere. Getting into my eye, my mouth. You breathe them in. There was only a few. You know, they always clump up, usually on top of somebody's head. You see it when there's light, right? You see them, right? It's those little things. Those, imagine the dust of the earth became gnats. How much dust in there in the earth? <laughs> I'm thinking about this. I'm already like, I'm getting goosebumps. I hate those things, right? The gnats... They came, right? Be the dust became gnats. These are flying insects. Some of them bite. Some of them don't bite. And they often, just like what I said, they form in large numbers. It's called clouds. Right? And they're, they're, what are they attracted to? What do they, what do they like? They like the fluids that your eyes secrete. That's why they always come at your eye. You know, all over the place. So what did the magicians do in 19? Or 18 and 19, what did they do? The magicians, what? They tried to produce gnats. 
They could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magicians came up to Pharaoh in 19 and said, this is the finger of God. You'd expect Pharaoh to be like, this is worse than the frogs. So you'd expect Pharaoh to be like, plead, plead with your God. Take away the gnats. No. Instead, he hardened, Pharaoh hardened his heart again, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the magicians tried, couldn't do it. I guess they learned from the frogs. There's already a lot of gnats. We're going to make more gnats come out? This is the plague that the magicians called the finger of God. But after this plague, again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, what can we learn from these two plagues? Frogs and gnats. Because if you think about it, right? If the frogs were alive, they would have eaten the gnats. <laughs> but Pharaoh told God, hey, get rid of the frogs. So the gnats, nobody was going to eat the gnats. <laughs> I just want you to think about that. Okay? That's what they did in, in Africa, right? When the, the, the grasshoppers came. Remember? What did they do to get rid of grasshoppers? They, they let a bunch of ducks go out on the fields so they would eat the grasshoppers. Isn't that what? If Pharaoh didn't ask for the frogs to go away, then, you know, they would have eaten all the nets. <laughs> He's that dumb, right? Pharaoh's that dumb. His heart was that hard. Right? So what can we learn from these two plagues? Four things. Number one. First, God does not need an army of angels or even thunderbolts and lightning in order to display his power and justice. That's why I said earlier, if I was God, I would make alligators come out or crocodiles come out of the Nile. But God didn't need that. I just need a frog and some gnats. <laughs> God's power is, can be on display even without an army of angels or even thunderbolts and lightning. He just needs a frog and a gnat. That's how powerful God is, right? Even just using his finger. Think about that. When the gnats came, the magician said this was the finger of God. Just one finger was able to bring down one of the most powerful nations at that time. And he didn't use an army. He just used frogs and gnats, insignificant creatures. That's why when God said in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. How is that going to happen? I'm just me. I'm insignificant. You're bigger than a gnat. <laughs> but that's a different sermon. But God's, that's God's power. Right? He can use any insignificant small creature to display his power. And again, this shows us that we, we, you think that we're masters of the universe. We're not in control of anything. Not the world, not the economy, and especially not our own destiny. So now, I want us to view this application in a positive or a negative way. Negatively, you can say, uh, when it comes to God's power, negatively, we can say that if we were Pharaoh, picking a fight with God is not a good idea. There's no possible scenario that we can think of or imagine where we can win. There's just no 
And I use this example downstairs when you're talking about Proverbs. And, and that's why there's, there should be a fear of God in us, right? Look at nature, for example. None of us will be able to survive nature's fury. Without God's help, we are at the mercy of nature like we are at the mercy of God. But hardened hearts, sinful men think, no, nah, I, can, I can do it. I'll go pet a polar bear. It's all good. I'll swim with sharks. All good. I'll jump off, you know, what do they call those things? They, when they base jump, I'll jump off the Grand Canyon. Ah, conquer the Grand Canyon. So those people turn out dead. Uh, I have a tiger as a pet. Dead. <laughs> you can't. We're nothing. We're nobody compared. We're nothing compared to nature without God's help. And that's what Pharaoh did. He picked a fight with, with God. Can't win. Now, positively, when it comes to God's power, God being so powerful means that if he is with you, what does Romans 8 say? We are more than, if God is with us, and there's no, there's no defeating us, right? But if you're against him, same power applies. That's how powerful God is, and that's the first thing we can learn from these two plagues. Second thing, God always keeps his word, even if we don't. Okay? When Pharaoh begged Moses to take the frogs away, Moses prayed, God acted. But this is what I want you to notice too. It's not my notes. But remember verse 11? What happened? He didn't get rid of the frogs. He just killed them. So it doesn't mean that you prayed for it <laughs> and Pharaoh asked you, I'm going to do it. That's what God is saying here. Right? Even though, yes, he did respond to prayer, but not the way Moses wanted. Not the way Pharaoh wanted. Ultimately, God was still the one who was going to decide how to answer prayer. And some people, they want to change that. No, God, I want what I ask for. You're not at a drive-thru. If, if you went to McDonald's and asked for 10 nuggets and they gave you eight, yeah, go get angry because you paid for that. But don't say to God, God, I wanted a tall, dark, handsome, can sing, have a lot of hair. That's what I want. And then God give you Short, bald, poor, fat. <laughs> what are you going to say? You wanted a partner, right? You wanted a husband. Here you go. <laughs> we can't change his mind about that. God ultimately is sovereign and he will do what he thinks is best. This, this proves the case. Moses said, oh, well, Pharaoh said get rid of the frogs. God said, no. I'll get rid of the frogs, but not the way you want. I'll just kill them. <laughs> i just kill them all. Um, and then what else happened? Okay. What else happened? When Pharaoh saw a break, when the frogs died, Pharaoh saw a respite, that's the break. What did he do? Oh, it's done. No more plague. Let me go back to how I was before. He went back on his word. A lot of us are like that, right? 
When there's trouble, Lord, please. You see that in movies a lot, right? When they're in trouble, the actor or whatever the character says in the movie, Lord, if you would just do this one thing for me, I promise I will. I will go to church every Sunday. I will do this. I will do that. I will do that. God answers, oh, no more, pro- no more trouble. Back to where I went. Skipping Sundays. Don't go to church. Don't read my Bible. Don't. That's what Pharaoh did. Right? We used to have that in our prayer meetings. When we used to have prayer meetings in, in here. You guys remember that? When, there were, when we were allowed to come here? No. During prayer meetings, people would show up during a prayer meeting and be like, oh, we haven't seen you in a while. It's nice for you to, to join us in our prayer meeting. And then prayer requests come in. Yes, I need a job. Please. We're struggling with our finances. Need a job. Then they get the job. Are they still in prayer meeting? I got to work. <laughs> They use God's blessing as an excuse not to serve God. When the going gets tough, the tough turns to God. When God answers and gets the tough going again, God is almost always put back to where he belongs in the lives of some of us. And where is that? Way at the back. Please, Lord, don't let the raptors get swept just give them one game. When's the next game? If it landed on a Sunday, oh no, I got to prepare. The Raptors are playing. Game five. Mm-hmm. That's the second thing we can learn. God always keeps his word, even if we, if we don't. Third, sometimes God will leave dead frogs in our lives to teach us a lesson. Why did God leave those dead frogs? There? <laughs> that, wasn't the, that wasn't the request. Why did God leave the frogs there? Right? When Pharaoh pleaded with Moses, he asked God to take away the frogs from Egypt. But God answered the prayer, but not in the exact way that they asked for. So let's try to put this in, uh, let's try to picture this scenario, right? When the river turned into blood, and this is to answer the question, why does God leave dead frogs? Why did God leave dead frogs? When the river turned into blood, Scripture said that all the fish in the Nile died. And when fish die, they stink. It says that. This was obviously not okay with Pharaoh and the Egyptians because the dead fish also infected the water in the Nile. Not to mention the Nile was already made of blood and it stunk, right? They didn't like it. They couldn't drink from the Nile. They didn't like it. The whole land stunk. But when the frogs died, and the whole land of Egypt stank, the Egyptians, what did they do? What did Pharaoh and the Egyptians do? Did they say, Lord, this is not what we asked for. We want you to to take these things away. But what did the Egyptians, what did Pharaoh do? Did he complain about the stink? No. All they did was they gathered all the frogs and piled them up. And for Pharaoh, that was a respite. (laughs) That was the break. Thank you, Lord, for killing all the frogs. Was that 
he didn't like it when the fish died. Why does he like it when, well, why is it okay when the frogs died? Again, ultimately, he didn't care as long as, what? That these things aren't bothering me anymore. As long as they're not alive, jumping into my bowl, jumping on my head, jumping in my bed. It's okay that they're here and it stinks. So what does that show you? What does that show us? It shows us that Pharaoh is not really bothered by the stink of the dead frogs as he was with the live frogs. How do we apply that? First, some of us are so used to some sins in our lives that the sin doesn't stink anymore. First thing, we hated it. I keep doing this. It's bad. But instead of coming to God for repentance and, and, and confession, we just, yeah, it's okay. He'll understand. Like the more we keep doing that, the more the stink of sin starts becoming normal. Right? Starts becoming normal. It doesn't stink anymore. Some of us, even, we even stop fighting recurring sin altogether. We just got used to the stench of the sin so much that it doesn't bother us anymore. We continue to fall into the same sin so much that it desensitizes us to the point that we don't mourn for that sin anymore. Dead frogs. Right? Why is it okay for Pharaoh to smell dead frogs? Because he's not bothered by it anymore. He doesn't care as long as they're not jumping in my bowl. It's all good. Same with our sin. Second, how do we apply dead frogs in our own lives? Uh, dead frogs in our own lives is that sin will always have consequences. Okay? Sin will always have consequences. Again, God's response to the prayer of Moses was not exactly what Moses asked for. God did not take away the frogs. He just killed them all and left it for the Egyptians to deal with. These, uh, these are similar to the consequences of our sins. Sometimes God often allows us to deal with the consequences of our actions so that we will remember it and learn from it. Right? Sometimes we ask God, God, I already asked forgiveness for this. You said you would forgive. But how come I'm still dealing with consequences? Because it's God's way of teaching us. He knew that Pharaoh was going to go back on his word. He, he must have known. That's why he didn't take it away. That's why he didn't take the frogs away. No, learn from this. Smell this. <laughs> In a way, I, I believe that that's a mercy coming from God to discipline us. If he leaves consequences for us to deal with when we sin, it's a mercy. That's how you're going to learn. That's how you're going to remember. That's the third, right? Third way we, we can learn, or what we can learn from uh, that story or those plagues is that sometimes God will leave dead frogs in your life, my life. Last. Fourth thing, last thing we can learn from these two plagues is the significance of the finger of God mentioned by Pharaoh's magicians. Again, 819. Can you guys read that? Can you guys read it? 
Okay. So now, what's, why is that so significant? Even I even made it the title of this whole sermon. Why is the finger of God so significant? Uh, Godquestions.org says this about the finger of God, and I quote, uh, that phrase, the finger of God, is found four times in the Bible, three times in the Old Test Testament, and once in the New Testament. It is synonymous with the supernatural power of God as it directly impacts events in the world. Okay? The finger of God is a reference to God's unlimited power as he intervenes directly in the affairs of men. The working of the finger of God is unmistakable. No device of man can compete with that power as even the heathen magicians came to recognize in Moses' day. That's God's display of power. Why is that so significant? You know, do you know that some tornadoes, especially the F5 tornado, do you guys know the Fujita scale of tornadoes? It's called F1, 2, 3, 4, 5, right? F1 tornado is destructive. But you can hide from it. F2 gets stronger, stronger, stronger. F5 tornadoes can destroy like buildings and states and lift up semi, you know, the trucks, the big trucks that you see, it can lift that up. That's an F5 tornado. Sometimes when you see, when people see an F5 tornado, they refer to it as the finger of God tornado. So that's what it looks like, right? Like God's finger, you're going like this. Because it's pointed, it's wide, and it points down. A finger of God tornado because of its awesome power. But what I want us to notice is that I think we can also think of the finger of God as God's display of precision. Precision. Right? Precision, like precise. Detail. That's God's display of precision and focus. Right? Why would you use your finger? Like, what do you use this finger for? Usually this finger, right? When we talk about, show me your finger. It's this one. What do you usually do? You point. Why do you point? Because I want to talk to, right? Pastor Luis always, you, you. It's precise. I'm telling you. I'm not talking to everybody. I'm just talking to you. Same thing with God's finger. The finger of God is a display of power, yes, but also precision and focus. It's like when we harness the power of the sun through, the, through a magnifying glass. But how does that work? When you put a magnifying glass on light, it, it turns into like this shape. It looks like a tornado. And whatever that thing points to, that's where the power of the sun is concentrated and it, you can burn it. Right? You can hurt somebody with the power of the sun. By itself, the power of the sun is harmless your lotion nowadays because of the atmosphere but whatever it's not going to kill you if you go out and sunbathe by itself it's harmless sometimes even helpful but if we focus it with a magnifying glass it can be harmful and even destructive right? light that is focused through a series of lenses what does that create if it's just not, if it's just uh if it's not just one lens if it's a bunch of lenses and you put a light through it what does that create? A what? A laser. <laughs> That's what a laser is. It's strong light condensed into this one point where all the power of that light is harnessed. And lasers can cut through anything. Right? Laser beams can cut through metal, can cut through anything. And the one thing that I want us to notice here, that the power coming from a laser or the light of the sun or the magnifying glass 
once it's harnessed, it is usually directed at a target. And that target is usually the, where that point is directed to, right? If you have laser surgery, laser eye surgery, all that stuff, it's, it's not like it's going to, you know, it's not going to do your whole eye. Just a certain part of your eye, right? It's usually directed at a specific target. It's not like a nuclear bomb that will just destroy everything in a certain radius. You just drop it and boom, everything around it is destroyed. It's not like that. And I believe the finger of God is God's power precisely channeled at a specific target to bring about two things, judgment and also healing or salvation. Right? In the story of Exodus, the finger of God referenced was obviously about judgment. Judgment on the gods and the people of Egypt, Egypt, including Pharaoh himself. And these judgments were precise in nature. After the first three plagues, okay, when I said earlier that the, the first three affected Egyptians and Israelites, after that, did the judgments of God affect the Israelites? No. It's precise. They, boils came, came to them. Not one of the Israelites got boils. Their animals died. Israelite animals? No. Precise, right? That finger is pointing directly at Egypt and delivering God's judgment. It's not like a nuclear bomb that will just destroy everything. Um, and so, um, what about when it comes to salvation, when it comes to healing? How does the finger of God work when it comes to healing? It's good news, right? The good news is that God's position is not only evident in his judgment, but also in his grace and mercy. God's power is also harnessed precisely to, you, to be used in the salvation of his people. Right? How does that happen? What does God do? How does that finger affect our salvation? I was talking to Brother Jesse the other night, Wednesday night. And I told Brother Jesse, it's okay, we'll wait. It's okay. <laughs> I was telling Brother Jesse, um, I'm the type of guy that when I mess something up, I want to scrap everything and do it over again. Right? Like if I cook something and it, yeah, it doesn't taste good, start over. Crack more eggs, crack, you know, get more ingredients. If it doesn't taste right, Aren't we happy and blessed that God is not like that? <laughs> he could have, right? You ever, you ever heard of the five-second rule? What's the five-second rule? When you drop something, something drops, like, say, an ice cream cone, <laughs> you pick it back up. It's not five seconds yet. It's good. But what do you do? You, yeah, you're not going to eat all the dust in there. You don't go like this and get rid of the whole ice cream cone. You go like this. Aren't we thankful that God is like that? Imagine. Imagine if, we, if God was like, mm. or, you know, forget that, I'll buy another ice cream cone. Imagine. Adam and Eve would have been, let me just recreate. But no, uh, God is precise. God is precise with his judgment. He's precise 
with His healing. He's precise with His salvation. So when we commit a sin, and we still all do, God's not going to say, you know what? You're tainted now. I can't have you. Out. You need to be saved again. No. That's not what God does. He just points directly at that sin, which if you had the faith, you would confess. And what does 1 John 1, 9 say? He's faithful and just to forgive. That one sin. Not your whole, all your sins. Just that one that you confessed. He's precise in that manner. He's precise when it comes to his salvation. And God's position shows when it comes to saving his elect. Right? He knows each and every one of these names written in the book of life. Revelation 3, 5. One who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found, read in the book of life. He was thrown to the lake of fire. Those people are specific. It's precise. God knows who is his and who's not his. Because um, it's like this. If God is a holy God, and he can't stand sin, um, and every time we sin, and we all still do, then it would be just of God to condemn us. Do we agree? Would it be just of God to just condemn us if we sin? It would be, right? Because he's holy. But praise God that his mercies are new every morning. And again, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us of that specific confessed sin. What about the ones we don't confess? Then no. <laughs> Obviously, you don't think that that's sin. You didn't confess it. But every confessed sin, God is faithful and just to forgive. So the power of the finger of God through the gospel Again, it's so precise that every confessed sin in our lives are being cut off by the power of God the more we grow in our faith and trust in Him. That's, that's how God cleanses us each and every single day. Not by getting rid of us all at once. No, just pinpointing. Oh, you confessed that? Mm, there, gone. Forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. Right? And that's the reason why Jesus washed the feet of His disciples. Right? Remember that story? Let's read it. John 13, 1 to 10. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of his, this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Six, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what? 
what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, what? If I don't wash you, you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to, except for his feet. But he's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, refers to Judas. So what's the lesson here? When it comes to God's position and the finger of God, Jesus washed only the feet. Why? Because it was the only part of Peter that keeps getting dirty. <laughs> Every day you walk, your feet get dirty. And Jesus, in his mercy and grace, thank God, first of all, that he washed the feet. And second, not because we're imperfect people, he just gets rid of us. No, but he's precise. Finger pointing at feet, at our sin. Confess sin, by the way. And he saves us through that. Jesus, Jesus washing the feet of his disciples displays for us the power of the finger of God at work, precisely cleansing us of our daily sins through the work of Christ on the cross. That's why that's the gospel. That's why it's good news. Amen? So what have we learned from the frogs and the gnats? Number one, God is that powerful. Number two, God always keeps his word even if we don't. Number three, God will sometimes leave dead frogs in your life. Some of us more than others. And don't get used to that stench. <laughs> it's not supposed to be there. Dead frogs in our lives. And last, the finger of God is precise. It's precisely directed power for both judgment and healing. Amen? Okay. We're going to continue our study of the plagues next week. Hope to see you again. Amen? Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you. Gracious, gracious, gracious.